Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Okay. So, uh, some of you know that we're studying the book of Revelation here on Wednesday nights, and I, I, I confess that it's radicalizing me and uh, making me more apocalyptic uh, than I have probably ever been. However, my apocalypticism takes a particular form that I want to talk with you about today. So in our study of the book of Revelation, we've been focusing on the role of God's people during the time known in this book as the Great, Revelation, uh, as the Great Tribulation. That role, we've learned, is to be a witness and testimony to the kingship of God and his Messiah, even to the point of death. That witness and testimonies embodied in a community of those who live according to the righteous commandments of God, even in the face of demonic opposition to those things that they stand for. But these principles and precepts of God's values by which we're to live and bear witness are not new. In fact, they are as old as the Torah itself. In other words, that the revelation at Sinai is a reflection of the revelation of John the Seer later on. And so today I want to talk about that way of life. In the Gospel of Matthew, our Messiah taught us, and the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. A challenging statement, by any means, to love our enemies, even as we love those whom we truly love. But interestingly, in the way in which the Mishpatim are given to us in this week's Torah portion, we can, they can help us to discern the heart of God. And the way we as his people should order our priorities for the sake of a compassionate and just world. By means of which we will shine the light of our Messiah in this world, bear witness to his faithfulness, and ultimately defeat the powers of this world. That's our challenge, to understand that. So I don't know if we have that up there, but... And I'm sorry, we only have one camera. Uh, Shabbat Shekalim, if anyone wants to help, but we need a new camera. It costs a lot of money. 
So if the Lord moves your heart. So let's take a look at this for just a moment. And I want to speak about the order of the Sinai revelation. The order in which it's given to us in Torah. So first, we're given the Ten Commandments, yes? A summary of all that God wants from us. And we know that this is summarized in two statements. To love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love our neighbor as ourselves. First four commandments teach us all about loving God. And the next six teach us how to live with one another in love and peace. But then we go into this, this week's Torah portion, Mishpatim. And we're given what I would call a social contract. But there's something unique about this social contract and the way in which it's constructed. I want to spend a minute or two here. So if you have a Bible and you want to follow along, I didn't put the scriptures up on the board, but if you go to chapter 21 of the book of, uh, of Exodus, you'll see something very unique and instructive. So, these are the ordinances. All right? Now, you might think that if God were giving a law code and, teach, and giving us a social contract, if, I, if I'm right about that, that notion that this is a social contract, this is how we're going to be able to live in a just and orderly society, a society which loves everyone and takes care of everyone, that it might start differently than it starts. It might start with um, how to set up the government, you know, how, how to make a, you know, a nice orderly government. And then it might set up, uh, you know, how to uh, set up your cities and, uh, and neighborhoods and so on. No. It doesn't do that. Instead, it starts by telling us how to deal with slaves. Now, I think it's important for us to understand that slavery was a reality in, that, in, in ancient times. It was a brutal reality, and it was part of the economic structure of the world. Sad to say. In fact, we didn't get rid of slavery in this world until, or at least legal slavery in this world, until the 19th century. And we were the, one of the last countries to ever do it, in fact. And yet God said that first, if we're going to have a just and orderly society, we are going to take care of the least in our society. And who is less than one who has given themselves over to slavery or been captured and finds themselves in so horrible condition? And God domesticates it. He says that there will be no Hebrew slaver who will ever, ever be someone's property in perpetuity. Not in my country. Not in my, among my people. You might be able to own him for a certain period of time, but unless he wants to be yours, you will set him free after a time. And I find it very interesting. Not interesting. Awesome that is so ancient a law code as Torah. 
that the first thing God begins to deal with us with is how to handle slaves. You know, there's another odd portion in this one in which it talks about women, or children actually, who are given over. It says in verse 7, if a man sells his daughter as a female slave, she's not to go free as the male slaves do. Now, if you were to just read that, you might say, oh, hey, this is crazy. But read it and, and try to understand what's actually happening. In those days, there's very often a way to socially advance, to give your daughter to another family who could help her have a life. So before puberty, she would be pledged to someone in that family. Maybe it was the man, you know, the man who, owned, who was the head of the household, or maybe it was one of his sons. This is, a, this is the way they did it. But God, in his righteousness, said, we will protect her rights. So you can't just use her any way you like. Either you will give her the rights of a wife in the, in the long term, or you will set her free. It says, uh, if he designates her for a son, he shall deal with her according to the custom of daughters. If he takes to himself another woman, he may not reduce her food or her clothing, her conjugal rights. And if he will not do these three things for her, then she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. It was to protect her rights. So I'm just amazed that God decided to begin the social contract by dealing with the least of the people in, in the society. If we're going to have a just world, the first thing we have to do is care for those who have the least. Because we learn today in Shabbat Shekalim that no one is worth more in the sight of God than any other. Why should it be so in our society? Everyone has worth. Everyone has value. Everyone has the same spark of the Holy Spirit in them. When God breathed into them the breath of life, the Ruach, he breathed the same portion of that Ruach into the least of people than he did to the greatest. Therefore, no, other life, no life is greater than another life. And we need, we need to respect all of it. So, in this portion, it goes on to give us this whole idea of a just restitution. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. That's not meant to exact revenge on anybody. It's to limit how much payback you can get. You know, because if I'm a really rich man or a really powerful person, and you do even the littlest thing to me, I can take care of you. Right? Not in God's world. In God's world, you can only get as much as you gave. And that is unique in all the world. Even today, we know, we know better. You know, <laughs> I was just watching the TV program all about the, the O.J. Simpson case, you know. Uh, and we, we know he, why he got off. He got off because he was wealthy and he was popular and he was, you know, a celebrity. And he could assemble the dream team. Me? I, I would have been in jail to, in three days. Not so with God. 
Everyone must be treated with equality. So there must be justice and fairness in our communities. That's the second thing, the mishpatim, a social contract between us, between all of us, that reflects justice and fairness and kindness, because we are to love our enemy and treat him the same way. And finally, there needs to be faith in this contract. It ends, this portion that I'm looking at, ends in chapter 23, and verse, uh, I'm going to look at verse 10. It says, You shall sow your land for six years and gather it, gather in its yield. But on the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, so that the needy of your people may eat, and whatever they leave the beast of the field may eat. You're to do so the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. Six days you're to do your work, but on the seventh day you shall cease from labor, so that your ox, your donkey, may rest, and the son of your female slave, as well as your stranger, and may refresh themselves. You see? We have to have faith that God will provide for us, that we don't have to overwork it, that we don't have to push and push and be so bloody commercial that we bleed the heart out of every, living, uh, every little thing. Shabbat is not just so that we can get together on a Saturday morning and sing songs. It's so that we're reminded each week that we are not the creator, he is. We are not the provider, he is. You see, it's a sin to work on Shabbos. It is. No matter what you think, because, hey, you know, you might have a good excuse, but it will never be good enough. Because what you say is God is not sufficient every time you do. That's the social contract. That we protect the lowly in society. That we're just in restitution. That we're fair in all of our dealings. And that we trust God for everything that we have or will have. And that that will be sufficient. Only then, only then, are we going to be able to ratify, oops, went too far, a ratification of the covenant. In chapter 24 of this portion, we ratify the covenant. I want to read that. Where is that portion? In verse 7. Moses has gone up to the mountain. He's taken Aaron with him, Nadav and Aviyu, 70 elders with him. And Moses, they park themselves on the bottom of the mountain while Moses rises up to, to meet the Lord. This social contract has been given to the people. And now Moses must bring the word back to the Lord as if God doesn't already know. It says, 
in verse 4, well, let me start at verse 3. That'll be uh, even better. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with twelve pillars for the twelve tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the sons of Israel and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. And then Moses took half the blood and put it in basins. And the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. He took the sacrifices that were made. And he, and he consecrated the covenant in the blood of the sacrifice. He took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, Kol asher diber Aronai na all the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient we will do it and we will not stray from this if we want a just moral holy society all that the Lord has said we must do even if it runs counter to the culture that we live. That's what we're learning in the book of Revelation. That the fact of the matter is, it does run counter to it. And there is no way to avoid the confrontation. Now that doesn't mean that we are going to exercise violence in order to get our way. Nope. Like the lamb led to the slaughter. That may be our destiny. But that doesn't free us from the, the oath that we swore to God at Mount Sinai. We will do it. We will hear it and we will do it. You know, if we cannot, if we cannot bring ourselves by our very nature to this place where we have the love and compassion and caring of God. You know, today as, I, as we were praying, Maybe this is because it's on my mind. But I saw in our prayers all of the compassion and love of God. Read through the, the prayer book carefully as we as, as just, just don't say the words. That this is the overriding characteristic quality of the people of God. That we are lovers, compassionate caring for everyone regardless of their station if we can do that we can change the world because the world is based on hate my brothers and sisters right now that's what it's based the whole world greed and hate and unless we turn these things around even at the cost of ourselves even if it costs me something I'm afraid so many more will be doomed. We have to do something. You see, 
Only then can we have a just world. Only then can we see more. We can see the, a vision of God. A vision of the Lord. Immediately after the, after the covenant is, is given and the people make this pledge, and Moses sprinkles the blood on the people consecrating the covenant, it says in verse 9 of 24, Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadav, Avihu, and the seventy elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. And for those of us who are studying Revelation together, we see this, we've seen this image before. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of Israel, the sons of Israel. And they saw God, and they ate, and they drank with him. My goodness. We want a vision of God. We want God in the midst of us. Then this is how we achieve it. Through a, love, a life of love and compassion. Like the love and compassion of God himself. Like the love and compassion of our Messiah. Who looked down on a world and said, I don't care that they hate me. Every one of their lives is worth saving. Even at the cost of my own. See? That's what wins the world. That's what's going to win the battle. That's what's going to win the final victory. At the end of the age, then we will see God. And once we've seen God, then, then we can build. Yeah, come on. Then we can build the Mishkan, the city of God. We're learning a lot about the city of Babylon, the city of this world. But there is another city coming. The city of God that is represented by the Mishkan in the scripture. Because there God dwells. It's not just the place of God's dwelling. It's the place where God's people will dwell. With he, he in the midst of them. And I know we all long to see that place. To walk the streets of that city. And to feel what it will feel like to be in a world without hate, without suffering, without disease, without poverty, without misery. Then we build the city of God. How will we see that? I want to tell you a story that I found that I thought was a remarkable story, actually. So give me a moment while I tell you this story. Stick with me. Everyone in Jerusalem knew old Burl Zolowitz. Poor old Burl. A lonely soul who lived in an old age home in one of the new neighborhoods outside the city walls. Burl was a shadow of a man destitute and friendless whose eccentricities bordered on the pathological oh I, know, I don't know anybody like that 
Take, for example, his compulsive habit of begging cigarettes. If you pass Burl on the street, he'd inevitably stretch out his hand and humbly request, please, may I have a cigarette? No one ever saw him smoke these cigarettes, nor could he possibly have smoked them all. He must have begged a hundred cigarettes a day. But then one day, old Burl underwent a transformation. There was a smile in his eyes, a lightness in his step. Even his bent old back seemed to have somewhat straightened. He began speaking to people and even stopped begging cigarettes. Suddenly, he was revealed as a lively old man with a lucid mind and a healthy spirit. And there was one man who knew the story behind Burl's metamorphosis. His name was Rabbi Yekiel. So one morning, when Rabbi Yekiel knocked on Burl's door, he was greeted with a broad smile. Something he hadn't seen on his friend's face in 20 years. Rabbi Yekiel said Burl, noticing the rabbi's surprise, Today... I've been granted a new lease on life. This is the happiest day of my life. Sit down, Rabbi Yekiel, continued the old man, and let me tell you a little bit about myself. You know what I was and what I am today, but you don't know how it happened. I do. I have only myself to blame. God blessed me with wealth and good fortune, and I failed to make proper use of his blessings. Yes, I gave generously to charity. Yes, my factories were provided, provided a livelihood to hundreds of Jewish families. But I was blind to the true significance of my wealth. Blind to my responsibilities toward God and men. I thought that my wealth was mine. My due for genius and toil. I thought my workers owed me their lives for the few pennies I gave them to feed their families. I was a tyrant who used his power to crush those who failed to please him. If a worker was late to work or lax in fulfilling my expectations of him, I lashed out at him, deducted from his wages, and threatened to fire him, a threat I often carried out. But there's no shortage of able-bodied men crowding the cities and begging for work. I shudder to think how many lives I made miserable with my heartlessness. Almost all the factories in Russia operated in this way. But that doesn't excuse my behavior. One incident would haunt me for many years to come. A worker had come to work ten minutes late. I summoned him to my office, and when the man mumbled something about a sick wife, I, I said coldly, So your wife is sick? What concerns that is mine? and sent him back to work after deducting half a day's pay, as clearly stipulated in the rules posted on the factory gate. In my mind, the incident marks the turning point of my life. Shortly thereafter, the Bolsheviks stripped me of all my possessions. Somehow I managed to avoid arrest when the industrialists of Minsk were rounded up. I escaped across the border into Poland and made my way to Jerusalem. Here I found shelter and respite, but no tranquility. I was haunted not by memories of my lost wealth, but of the type of person it had made me. I kept thinking of the workers who had tended all night to his sick wife and cowered before me in my office, pleading for his job. How did it feel to be at the mercy of another human being? To be humiliated by his callous indifference to your fate? I had to know. 
I felt that until I experienced what I had made that man experience, I would not find atonement for my soul. So I decided to become a beggar. I didn't want to collect money. I was loath to handle the vile stuff. And all my needs were generously provided by your institution. So I begged cigarettes. For hours each day I stood on the street, asked passers-by for cigarettes. But everyone treated me kindly, perhaps because they'd heard of who I was and were out of pity for an old man, somewhat soft in the head. This morning, I approached an elegantly dressed gentleman and asked for a cigarette. The man eyed me coldly and said, so you want a cigarette? What concern of that is mine? His words, and especially the tone in which they were said, cut to the quick of my soul. Never had I been so humiliated. For a moment, I felt I was nothing, that my existence was utterly without worth. And then an icy shudder passed through me. Why, these were the exact words I had said to that worker in my factory more than 20 years ago. Suddenly, I was filled with an incredible joy. The circle had been closed. Now I can die in peace knowing that God has accepted my repentance. You see, Burl had to internalize the truth of God's compassion. The social contract that God has made. Until we, see, we can preach all we want from this book. And many of you do it. You do it really well. But until you internalize it, until it becomes part of who and what you are, until you can verbalize it without thinking about it or without quoting a verse, it means nothing. See, Burrow was this great industrialist who gave lots of money to the poor, but it never touched his heart. Never. It was just excess money he could get away with by giving it to the instead of giving it to the government. It was only when he internalized it and made it a part of who he was that he could be free. And that we can be a free and just society. There are lots of words in the Constitution of the United States, beautiful words, in our Declaration of Independence and the writings of the Fathers. But until they become the internalized vision of every single soul in our nation, we don't, we don't have anything. And we are nothing. Just beggars of cigarettes. And I'm praying for something greater for us. Because only then will we be able to enter the rest of God. The last thing in these portions is the giving of Shabbat. The commandment to rest in the Lord. That we should be able to settle down and rejoice and see a vision of God. A vision of each other.
that will allow us to live as peaceable members of the kingdom. That's my hope. So as we study the Mishpatim, may each of them burn into our hearts as the promise of the Brit Hadashah is. We read the Brit Hadashah in the book of Jeremiah. That these things will be written on our hearts. And that we'll have no man to teach us because they will be in us. And may the Lord our God be in us as well. Holy One of Israel, Lord, we bless you that you give us great words. But you've given us something else. You've given us the living word, the Messiah Yeshua, who lived out the meaning of your Torah as an example to all of us of what is necessary for us to live in a just and peaceable world where we will have a vision of God and a life together with him. May we see that day come speedily and soon. But I pray for each one of us individually and collectively that we will discover the truth for ourselves. Burn it into our hearts, Holy Spirit, so that we might be transformed into the image of our Messiah. Amen.